Oh God, open our lips and speak through them. Open our minds and think through them. Open our hearts and set them on fire. Amen. Amen. Well, we learn in the Gospel today that tax resistance is as old as, well, taxes. It's been around a while. A country under occupation was apparently asking this question. Should we pay taxes to the emperor or not? And they wanted to know what Jesus thought about that too. Now the underlying question in this one is always, if I disagree with something my taxes are going to pay for, should I refrain from paying them? Would that, would that be a good way of putting pressure on the taxing government and maybe bring about change? Tax resistance has been used as a form of civil disobedience for ages. Think of the Boston Tea Party. Think of the appeals for home rule in India when Gandhi organized the salt march because of Britain's tax on salt. During women's suffrage in the U.S., the women's tax resistance campaign, where one prominent campaigner said, I say to the government, you may pick my pocket because you are stronger than I, but I'm not going to turn my pockets wrong side out for you. I believe that the spirit of no taxation without representation that resulted in the Revolutionary War is inherent and just as actual in the women of the country as it was then in the men of the country. Can I hear an amen? Well, a few months ago, Peggy Burt loaned me her copy of the recently published biography of the former Roman Catholic Archbishop of Seattle, Raymond Hunthausen which I have been reading. Thank you, Peggy, and I'll get your book back to you, I promise. One of the things that made Hunthausen famous across the country and internationally was his protest against the Trident nuclear arsenal here in the Puget Sound. He had joined the protests against these missiles on the Hood Canal and uh, created a lot of controversy in the process. And against the advice of his then press secretary, our neighbor, Father Mark, Mark, uh, Mike Ryan, now the, and for a long time now the pastor of St. James Cathedral, he announced his decision to withhold 50% of his income taxes as a form of protest and invited others to join him in it. That protest ended when the IRS garnished his wages to pay his unpaid taxes. Now we can just about imagine what it would be like if today if you can imagine, Republicans and Democrats or people of any party started to use tax resistance as a way of pressuring the government into adopting its own priorities. Let's carve up the federal budget into all the programs that you agree with on one side and all of those you disagree with on the other side and pay taxes only on the proportion you agree with. We all know what that would be like, don't we? Chaos. The IRS, of course, would go crazy too. Now that is not to say that some forms of tax resistance have never been warranted or even successful. They have at times. But if we're looking for a scriptural justification for this as a practice, today's gospel would not be that place. Jesus is confronted by some Pharisees who are just sure that he is just radical enough 
that he would surely be against paying taxes to the emperor and that their legal minds would be able to catch him in some kind of contradiction on this matter. So when they ask him if it is lawful to pay taxes to the emperor, he first of all exposes their own hypocrisy when he asks them to show him a coin. They promptly produce a Roman denarius, which was the currency used for, yes, paying taxes. So here they were, the pious Jews whose sole purpose and message was strict adherence to the law of Moses. And when they produced a denarius, he asks them, whose head is this? And whose title do you find on that? And you can kind of hear them mumbling among themselves, <laughs> harumph, uh, well, it's the emperor's. They were themselves in possession of a coin with a graven image of Caesar on it, whose title was Lord of the Universe, clearly contradicting the second commandment against any kind of graven image. Jesus' words that follow are very interesting. Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, in their historical context, these words of Jesus had little to do with taxation or political authority in general. Jews in the first century paid several kinds of taxes. They paid tithes to the temple that averaged, we're told, about 21% a year, customs taxes, and taxes on land. The people identified as Jesus' opponents were not questioning taxes in general. Their question was more specific. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The New Testament scholar Marcus Borg, reflecting on this passage, said, this text offers little or no guidance for tax season for us. It neither claims taxation is legitimate nor gives aid to anti-tax activists. It neither counsels universal acceptance of political authority nor its reverse. But it does raise the provocative and still relevant question. What belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar? And what if Caesar is Hitler or apartheid or communism or global capitalism? What is to be made of Christians, of the attitude of Christians toward domination systems? whether ancient or modern? Those are all questions that we must continue to ask ourselves. But the question about what belongs to God is a very important one, and perhaps it is even the crux of the whole matter here. By Jesus' own example and his teachings, we can safely say that he was not suggesting that people ought to give some percentage of what they had to God. He was almost certainly reminding them that all that they have and all that they are is God's. And that is what we are asked to give to God by implication, all that we have and all that we are. Yes, our whole being. This was Jesus' way of breaking through the Caesar versus God dichotomy that had these Pharisees in its grip. 
and perhaps our own secular versus sacred dichotomy or our own this is my spiritual life here but this is the real world dichotomy that we sometimes make he was saying it's finally all one thing if we can only see with our truest vision as with many things we do not always find clear and unequivocal answers in the Bible. But when Jesus asked the question, whose head, whose likeness do you see on this coin, it gives us a clue about what we should be thinking here. Megan McKenna writes this about this passage. She said, in Genesis, we read that we are made in the image and likeness of God. God created humankind in his image. In the divine image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Each person is created singularly, uniquely, reflecting something of God in their very own person. But when minting coins, as a, ru when minting coins a ruler makes all the images exactly the same. They are flat representations of himself, the emperor. When Jesus asks for the coin and poses the question, whose image and inscription is this? They respond with Caesar's name and image. The coin belongs to Caesar, but the person, the human being, belongs solely to God. The Jesuit scientist and theologian and mystic Paul, uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin understood creation to be a reflection of God's own being and nature. And humans in particular made in the image and likeness of God to be singularly significant indicators of, of that creation and of what that image of God might actually look like. In his book, The Phenomenon of Man, Teilhard says this, he says, what is the work of human works if not to establish in and by means of each one of us an absolutely original center in which the universe reflects itself in a unique and inimitable way? In other words, each and every one of us in our uniqueness says something unique about God and about the many ways God is to be understood. Caesar's image, that avatar of domination, Caesar's image there on that coin is flat, one-dimensional, preferring conformity and uniformity. It is the enemy of diversity and uniqueness. God's image is what we see when we look out here at this group of people assembled today and of which Raj spoke about just a minute ago. God's image is this, what we see when we see ourselves in our beautiful and amazing diversity, both here today and around the world. It delights in diversity and uniqueness, and the fact that every leaf is different from another, every snowflake from every other snowflake that has ever fallen. This is the world that God loves and in which God delights. The reason the Pharisees were amazed was that in these simple words, Jesus had put his finger on the one great truth, that no pretender to God 
even if it's the most powerful person on earth, no person can demand our ultimate allegiance or take from us what belongs only to God. This little story may not help us very much at tax time, and I have to say it doesn't help all that much at pledge time either, if you think about your pledge as a kind of tax that you pay to God or to the church. But that changes when you remember that all of who we are and all of what we have is God's. At this altar each week, together, together with Jesus, we are offering all of who we are, body, soul, and spirit. We're placing ourselves on this altar, along with Christ and his own death and resurrection. We're placing an offering of all who we are back to the God who created us and gives us life so that we can live to fulfill God's purposes in creation. The offerings that we make here, whether of our money or food or whatever else we bring, they are the signs and symbols of that one true offering that we are making of our whole selves to God. And if we get that out of this little story from the Gospel today, I think we've begun to understand what it's all about. And that's why St. Paul said in his second letter to the Corinthians, each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Amen.